university but when I went into starting this area of research I felt like individuals who chose to join the armed forces perhaps sought a sense of violence and um, had personality traits that linked to aggression and displaying aggressive behaviours but the more I've worked with veterans, spoke to veterans, the more I've understood that actually the majority of these individuals see themselves as humanitarian. They're not, perhaps as society might see them, like bloodthirsty, warmongering individuals. They're the most elite trained fighting force we've got who are the most equipped to go and manage situations of conflict. And they don't do that because they want to harm other people or hurt other people. They do that because who else would we send? They're, they've been through all this training. They're the, most, they're the best trained people to go and do this job. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So today you're going to hear from Heidi Tranter. Heidi is a second year PhD student at the University of Central Lancashire. Alongside this, she works as a research associate at GMNH NHS Foundation Trust and delivers on the Inner Strength Programme, which supports individuals experiencing domestic conflict. Previously, she's worked with CAMS, primary care and forensic services, providing therapeutic support to both children and young people as well as, as well as adults. She's also been involved in research exploring the effects of experiencing adversity during childhood on emotional resilience. And Heidi, we've invited you on today to discuss your PhD research, which is perhaps only tangentially related to the clinical work you've participated in, but it's very relevant to those working in the criminal justice system. So welcome. Pleased to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Hi Heidi, very nice to meet you. I wonder if we could begin with you explaining what you're doing and you're doing, well I do know you're doing a PhD focus on why individuals join the armed forces, so what led you into this line of work? Yes, so well I've done some work previously in prisons and I worked in a specific prison where there was a veteran wing and whilst I was working there I noticed that the prisoners themselves were feeling quite comfortable, not necessarily happy but comfortable in that environment and it made me reflect a little bit on the fact that these are individuals who have been involved in a job role, perhaps one of the most difficult jobs that we've got in society, they've made a decision to enlist, serve in the armed forces and then are comfortable in prison which just didn't seem to connect very well to me you know as a society I think we should be supporting them a bit more to feel comfortable in other environments not necessarily a prison Um, so that's what got me started thinking about this area initially and then it seemed like an appropriate starting point to think about what leads people to decide to join the armed forces because again having not myself not come from any kind of military background or have any familial ties to the armed forces it seems 
almost a bit of an alien decision to me it never crossed my mind to make that choice and um, when I was thinking about careers so again it's it felt like it was a good place to start and um, by trying to understand a little bit more what motivates people to enlist in the armed forces that's very interesting both Naomi and I have worked in prisons uh, all about the place um, I didn't know, it's a bit shocking to hear that there's a whole wing devoted to veterans, because I think both of us have met uh, uh, former servicemen in, in other parts of the prison system. But I was just thinking that it would it would be good actually to, to interview somebody who does work there therapeutically, because with this interview with you and also having interviewed Hannah Wilkinson, it'd be quite nice to have a string of veteran-focused yeah. podcasts, so... Okay, thank you. So, can you tell us about your research methodology then? Uh, yes, so as I mentioned before, I'm starting looking at the enlistment decisions um, when people decide to join the armed forces. So, I'm starting off um, with a systematic review, as I suppose a lot of researchers might do, to explore the current literature around enlistment decisions and to have a look at any current theories that are being applied to the motivations behind these choices. Um, so I finished the systematic review stage and I then went on to conduct some semi-structured interviews um, and that was with 19 male veterans. So my studies two and three of my PhD focus on the data from these interviews and then my final study, because generally a PhD is done in three or four individual studies um, what I'm hoping to do is propose a psychological needs based framework to understand both enlistment decisions and support that could be implemented with veterans when transitioning out of the armed forces so my final study I'll present the framework and collect some quantitative data around how people can relate to that is there anything that's missing from that? Um, and yeah, that'll, that'll be hopefully a nice way to round off the PhD. Thank you. So are, are you referring to uh, veterans as people who have uh, seen combat um, or more generally applying to all veterans? So for my PhD, I'm using it in a broader sense of anyone that has experience um, serving in the armed forces. I think some of the data from my interviews reflected very few participants saw being involved in the armed forces as having actual combat experience. Um, the majority of participants reflected on the training process itself being extremely challenging and that in itself causing difficulties when transitioning out. So in this sense, I'm using veterans in, in the broader way, not necessarily individuals who have um, had direct experience with combat. Thank you. And I understand you're using Glasser's choice theory to analyse the motivations behind why people join up. Can you tell our listeners what this theory entails and why it seems so relevant? Yes, so Glasser's choice theory proposes that human behaviour is driven by generally one of five 
satiable needs. So either love and belonging, power, survival, freedom, or fun. And the idea is that at any one time, one of these needs is overriding the other ones and that then leads to us behaving in a certain way. So for example, in the sense of the armed forces, a lot of individuals that I've interviewed felt the need of belonging really resonated with them at that time and motivated that decision to enlist. And as we know, there is that real sense of camaraderie within the armed forces. Um, I've chose to use Glass's theory to underpin the needs-based framework as opposed to perhaps the institutional and occupational model which has been applied to enlistment motivations and self-determination theory which is again a very um, often used theory within psychology that's applied to behaviour and motivations behind behaviour um, because choice theory encompasses the need for fun as a driver of behaviour and I think even just from the interviews and from the literature around enlistment motivations that is a factor that plays into um, the decision for individuals to to enlist in the armed forces so it seemed really important to capture that in the framework that I'm proposing because again just from the interviews and even looking at the adverts for the armed forces themselves it is something that appeals to people isn't it the perhaps the extremity of fun um, that's offered in a job role such as that. No, you're, you're dead right. I mean, it certainly does. The adverts that I see on the uh, television certainly appeal to your know, sense of uh, fun. So what did you what did you find? So from the systematic review, I found that the existing literature around enlistment motivations can choice theory can apply to those and they can be characterized within these five needs um, that are proposed in this theory. When I did the interviews with the, with veterans, they did feel that the needs, at least one of the needs generally tended to resonate with them at the time they chose to enlist. But as a result of finishing those, um, we, well, I've decided to relabel them because some of them, there was a bit of disconnect between how the participants felt that need was represented or defined. Um, so within my framework, we've relabeled them as just belonging, responsibility instead of power, survival, freedom and fun. And that's then representative of what the veterans themselves felt they could connect to um, when enlisting and then also having these needs met within the armed forces but then even when transitioning out. So these needs were there the whole way through. Thank you. Can you, can you say a bit more about some of the, the needs that were met by Roger Yeah, so I think belonging, um, survival, freedom and fun were very prevalent in enlistment decisions. Belonging, as I've said, from that sense of camaraderie and family that the armed forces is probably most well known for and that was very appealing to individuals who perhaps didn't have that at home or who were really seeking that so therefore their need for belonging was quite high which motivated that decision to enlist. Um, 
with regards to freedom, that was seen as perhaps a need to escape a less stable home environment, as again, the armed forces offered both financial stability, physical stability in the sense of a living environment, and the opportunity to travel and kind of escape this a situation that an individual might be in. Um, so that was seen as a motivation to enlist. And also fun, as we've discussed in, perhaps it is a very small part of the job role itself, but it is very much there. And just the extremity of, you know, jumping out of a plane, parachuting, things that perhaps we wouldn't get the opportunity to do in other job roles, for example. Um, there were some other needs that didn't explicitly fit within those proposed in Glass's choice theory. And one of those that was quite prevalent, um, especially for individuals who had served in the Royal Marines, was, was the perception of Marines themselves. And this stemmed from, even just from the adverts um, for that division of the armed forces. And I think one of the participants who I interviewed referenced the tagline, um, for 99% of people, this is too hard. And after watching that, he was like, no, I'm that 1%. So that there was a certain mentality and perception of the Marines as its own division um, that seemed to motivate, well, all the Marines I spoke to, that was something that was really big when they were making that decision. They felt like that was the division they needed to join compared to the other ones. So there were, there were a couple of um, needs and motivations that didn't fit within the, the five categorised in choice theory, which I think is to, is to be expected when you're trying to categorise these things, but that was one that was quite prevalent. I wonder whether that might fit with power, actually, you know, in terms of the status of of being in an elite part of the, the forces, because that would confer a degree of power on, onto somebody, wouldn't it, that you're in this position of, of supremacy? Um, in terms of your, your skills? Well, yeah, perhaps it could do. I think when we renamed it responsibility, I wasn't as sure if it fit within that, but it's definitely worth thinking about because, like you say, it is that almost sense of supremacy within that division. Yeah, it's, some, it's something for me to think about. And one of the things about... This, there's quite a strong association between having a history of adverse childhood experiences, isn't there, and, and joining that. Did your research throw up any thoughts in you about, about why that might be? Um, yeah, I think, obviously, yes, you're right. We, ha we do see a lot of individuals joining the armed forces from adverse experiences and the prevalence of that within the armed forces is really high. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because when you think about the job role itself, it's it almost offers people a, a new life somewhere, new friends, a new sense of family. And um, as we've said before, stability with regards to finances, to an actual living environment, and perhaps a sense of purpose as well that isn't being met at home. And I think when we think about individual needs and what motivates behaviour, when we think about childhood adversity and attachment, I think the armed forces would very much appeal to individuals who 
a searching for a sense of belonging, perhaps as we said, freedom, trying to escape an environment that isn't as supportive of them. Um, so I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but perhaps the there needs to be more attention paid to that aspect of the enlistment um, process. Thank you. And the research has focused on people's individual needs for, for joining work, for the needs that were being met. Do you think the armed forces as institutions understand these motivations? I, I mean, I wondered whether there's whether the institutions could perhaps be seen as being exploitative of people from a lower social economic background. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, and. I would agree perhaps exploitative, perhaps they appeal to a certain group of people within society because of what they offer. And I think it ties into what I said before about, it's not necessarily a bad thing. These are jobs which, as we've said, offer so much for an individual, but perhaps as an organization, as an institution, the armed forces need to be mindful of the types of individuals that are coming through the doors and if they have been through any type of adversity, trauma, perhaps being mindful of why they're choosing to come to this job role and not, you know, as if someone does come from a traumatic background and then they go into frontline or combat experience and we're just adding to that trauma and not recognising that it's already there, that then becomes incredibly difficult for that individual when they're transitioning out. Um, so I think, I think it's it's a good job role, and it appeals to a certain group of people within society. And I definitely think, as an institution and as an organisation, the armed forces need to be mindful of that and be aware of how the job role itself can further exacerbate any difficulties that these individuals might have already experienced. Thank you. And what happens to so those needs that people have that, that contribute to them joining the armed forces, what happens to those when they when they leave the armed forces? Is there much support to help them meet those needs when they go back to city? So there is a discharge document um, that the armed forces use to help individuals transition out and offer some guidance around that. Um, I have had a look through that obviously as part of my research and interestingly I found the last few pages are about joining the reserves and so obviously there is for some um, veterans there is that mandatory reserve duty that they have to fulfill but it seemed a little bit defeatist almost to say oh well you can come back and it'll all you'll be fine again and um, it seems like we're not encouraging them to make that transition um, and we've got the Armed Forces Covenant as well that says, like, as a society, it's our obligation to support these individuals. But from the interviews I've done and the veterans I've worked with and spoken to, it's a very tricky process to navigate. And the literature ha has even highlighted that veterans generally try and be quite self-sufficient in supporting themselves with their mental health and so again it's being mindful of things like that these perhaps aren't individuals who are going to actively seek that support so i think there is something in empowering them to 
understand perhaps why they chose to join so for example if it was belonging and they've had that need of belonging fulfilled for their service period or until they've decided to leave when they come out what are they coming back out to and if they can identify as this is something that I need to fulfill in myself it's not necessarily going for therapy or talking therapies it might be joining a sports club or perhaps a church group something that fulfills that need of belonging that's obviously it's not as simple as just doing all of that yeah, but, but it sounds, it sounds I like think, you're saying there's something useful that can be achieved by helping people understand reflect on and understand what their motivations were for, for joining up and then thinking about how they might fulfill those needs afterwards because I guess as your your interviews um, perhaps prompted that kind of thinking but people often come to realisations in research interviews that they perhaps because people don't ask those questions or know they so it sounds like there could be something useful done by having people reflect on yeah definitely and I think it was something that came out in the interviews and tended to flow on quite naturally when thinking about these needs and of what happened when they transitioned out and how easy it was to navigate the support and how consistent it is across the country because it's again as we know with different support services what you could get Perhaps in the south of the country, you might not get in the north or the west or the east, for example. We know that transitions um, can be stressful for people across all walks of life, all sorts of transitions. Um, but obviously, retirement from a role um, is, a, is a very specific transition, and perhaps people in the armed forces are doing that earlier than some people might leave other roles. Um, is there anything else about transitioning out of the armed forces that is uniquely stressful or that might serve as a barrier to getting the needs met when you leave? So I think, interestingly, and it wasn't something I'd perhaps thought about coming into this area of research, from the interviews that I've been doing, the sense of responsibility that perhaps, uh, again, isn't wasn't necessarily an enlistment motivation at the time but the job role itself offers an immense sense of responsibility for an individual and that was something that a lot of veterans highlighted was missed when they transitioned out um, because perhaps working in Tesco or working in an office you know doesn't match that sense of responsibility at all and a lot of the individuals who I spoke to found the transition a bit easier if they stepped into a blue light kind of job role or had family with working within blue light job roles because there was um, a more shared understanding of the trauma, responsibility and difficulties that could be experienced um, within certain job roles. So... Yeah, I think that's something that, as well as trying to navigate this support, the loss of such responsibility was quite difficult for a lot of people to try and work through. That's really interesting because, as we as we know, a lot of um, a lot of prison officers have a background 
in the armed forces and of course being a prison officer is a is a role where there's a lot of responsibility um on a daily basis. So I think what you're highlighting sheds some light on why the being a prison officer might be a bit particularly appealing to people who serve in the armed forces. Definitely, and there's a lot of job security around those jobs, like the continuation and progression in the prison service. I, th I don't think I've ever spoke to someone um, working in a prison who's done less than 10 years service. <laughs> so, yeah, there's definitely something to be said for that job role as well. Can I just ask what a blue light role is? Yeah, of course. So, um, the fire, working the fire service, police or ambulance service, or even within, within an A&E um, in a hospital setting so just for example one of the participants who I spoke to he did start a kind of nine to five Monday to Friday job but outside of work he volunteered um, and was on like bank for the fire service so he'd done training to go into working in the fire service as well because the Monday to Friday nine to five again wasn't meeting his needs um, after that transition period. So they're all jobs really that involve team working, got some sense of identification with a with the role, very strong identification with the role, um, and with action uh, being a large component of the of the task. Yeah, it sounds like the acceleration of you know the sense of danger and risk could might in some ways fit that sense of fun, might it, in terms of there's a thrill about it, even if it's tinged with fear at the same time. Mm -hmm. Definitely, and very often the veterans themselves, the ones who had direct combat experience, saw that as fun, that sense of adrenaline. Again, it's unimaginable, um, the sense of adrenaline from, from an experience such as that. And so yes, then you can see how that might translate into um, a job role within a blue light service. Thank you. There's also a strong association between having served in the armed forces and, and being imprisoned, which was your first contact, of course. Do you think the armed forces contributes directly to this in a causative way, or is this a correlation by virtue of their childhood experiences? Again, I think that's a very interesting question. I think it would be very diff difficult to attribute either one of those things, um, you know, to say it was one or the other, to separate those two in that context. Um, when thinking about the armed forces and these needs and how people meet the needs that they did have met during that time, um, something that I, again, the interviews I did didn't really shed a lot of light on this, but it was something that I'm thinking about. Um, perhaps if individuals transitioning out don't have chance to develop more positive coping strategies to meet these needs, offending behaviour, there's, there's in a sense of adrenaline and that rush and that thrill that we've been talking about very much in behaviours such as that. So there could be again i'm not saying for definite but um it was something i was thinking about is whether the the organization of the prison and the institutionalization of that environment was the the appeal for is appealing for veterans perhaps i'm not sure but 
or whether the behaviours that result in people going to prison fulfil those needs of adrenaline and thrill-seeking. And that's perhaps what I think with regards to that area. Thank you. And do you think um, your participants, did you pick up anything from them about what they thought about their transition? Should Did they think more should have been done to help them either to make the transition or following up afterwards? I think definitely following up afterwards, um, but not kind of two weeks after giving it a more significant period of time to have those follow-ups. Because as we all know, it, it takes time to adjust. If you've been in an environment for years, it would take time to readjust um, to a different setting. And as well, the, the notice period. So when someone wants to leave the armed forces, the preparation for that discharge starts you know, nine to 12 months before they actually leave. Um, so a lot of the participants I spoke to really felt that more could be done in that period um, in the sense of preparing individuals for that transition. I think something that was really interesting that was highlighted was um, as some of the discussions I had, we wondered who was responsible for the support in that transition. Was it the veterans themselves or was it um, civvies, people who haven't been in the armed forces? Was it their responsibility to understand what these individuals have been through? And a lot of the participants I spoke to very interestingly said that um, armed forces personnel are used to following orders, taking direction from other people and are very ready to respond to that. So they felt if they were sat down and helped to understand how their experiences in the armed forces could impact their transition into civilian life, if they were sat down and told what might happen or like just as an example, um, they felt in employment, if an employer told them to you know, perhaps take the cardboard out to the bin, they would do that exactly as they were told down to the letter. Whereas someone who hadn't had experience being in the armed forces might chose not to do it or might have done it a different way to how they'd been asked and didn't necessarily follow that order directly. So um, even just things like that, helping them understand how because of this environment that you've been in and and it's not I think they were really clear to say it's not civvy bashing it's not anything like that it's just helping us understand our behaviors in the context of what we've been through within within the job role within the armed forces so I think there's something in that as well and um, to help prepare individuals for that transition and that was perhaps something I hadn't thought about before. Did you detect any any level of mixed feelings about that? So if, if the sort of overall ethos was to follow an instruction to the letter of the law, was there also a bit of some of them which railed against the authority that was issuing those kind of instructions? I wouldn't say necessarily, but there was, um, if there was disagreement that led to the individual feeling a lot of frustration um, and especially amongst colleagues led to a lot of friction between them and colleagues because they may be seen as, um, you know, like sucking up to the boss or trying to get everything done perfectly. And 
from their perspective it's not that sense at all it's very much how they've been taught to um respond and behave because again when we think about the context of the job role of the armed forces if they don't follow an order to the letter the consequences of that could literally be life and death um so i think there is something to be said for society's perception of veterans but also there may be some more support that could be implemented during that notice period to help prepare veterans for that transition because as we've said it, it can be incredibly difficult for some people thank you maybe Make me think about introducing clinical supervision into prison environments where people aren't very good at necessarily owning vulnerability or um, and talking about things that make them feel vulnerable or reaching out for support. But by making clinical supervision compulsory, everyone did it, and the, and it came to a point where actually then if people's supervision was cancelled, they'd be complaining about it because they really valued it and appreciated it. And it made me wonder whether that that's, that training to follow orders, whether it ought to be the case that people when they leave the forces are required to do, you know, through follow-up sessions or whatever, which allowed them the opportunity to talk about some of these difficulties adjusting to civilian street, which might be not a problem for some people, but would mean that anyone who was struggling would have an opportunity to be able to do so. Definitely. And I think that you say having those sessions and spreading them out appropriately, because again, it's not a case of like a two weeks. Oh, how's it going? Okay, fine. It's been two weeks because it could take years for these difficulties to really transpire or for someone to recognize that actually this is something I'm, I'm finding difficult. So definitely perhaps some support like that would be really helpful as well. I wonder if you had any thoughts on how we as a society as a whole could better support people after they leave. So rather than thinking about the institutions' responsibilities, other things that we could do. Again, I think that's a, it's a huge question. Um, and as I've mentioned before, it is highlighted in the Armed Forces Covenant that as a society, we do have this obligation of support for veterans and serving Armed Forces personnel. And it's, I always think it's, it's good to have things written into these documents and to have things on paper, but it's not always the case that these translate um, into real life perfectly. So I think um, having some understanding of individual experiences and how these influence behaviour is really important and perhaps you know, society as a whole seems like a big place to start, but even just employers having an understanding of obviously how employing a veteran can be extremely beneficial to the company because you are getting a loyal, hardworking individual, but understanding where there may be barriers um, within the workplace and perhaps why colleagues might find it, might find them might find certain aspects of their work ethic difficult um, and vice versa really. So I think there could be more support and more understanding from employers. And I think it's not necessarily we all 
you know, give everyone therapy all the time and try and solve all these problems. I think there's just more to be said for people being a bit more, being understanding of the experiences that people have had. And as we've said, even the training process within the armed forces. So they're taking civilians and building them into soldiers. And that is intense and difficult. And again, as I've said, it was never something that crossed my mind. So I think just being understanding that obviously these people do one of the most important job roles that we've got in society. And I think the least we could do is be a bit more understanding of that. You hear, really hear your appreciation of people that perform those roles, Heidi, and how you're talking about, about, your, about your research. But I wondered, how have you changed over the course of your research? Has it helped you grow as a person? Definitely. I think, I'm just thinking then because I, I think it's um, definitely over the past couple of years and even the work I've done before that, um, self-reflection has been super important and recognising if I've had misconceptions about situations or individuals and perhaps if I had not said the right thing or could have handled a situation differently, I think it's always important to self-reflect and learn how to grow from those experiences. And I think one of the biggest learning points I've taken from my research so far is that not to this extremity but when I went into starting this area of research I felt like individuals who chose to join the armed forces perhaps sought a sense of violence and um, had personality traits that linked to aggression and displaying aggressive behaviours but the more I've worked with veterans, spoke to veterans, the more I've understood that actually the majority of these individuals see themselves as humanitarian. They're not, perhaps as society might see them, like bloodthirsty, warmongering individuals. They're the most elite trained fighting force we've got who are the most equipped to go and manage situations of conflict. And they don't do that because they want to harm other people or hurt other people. They do that because who else would we send? They're, they've been through all this training. They're the most, they're the best trained people to go and do this job. And so I think um, when I'm thinking about personal growth and things that I've really took away from, I say took away, I'm still, I'm still in the middle of it all, but um, I'm learning for our PhD is just as well how armed forces personnel and veterans see themselves um and again that probably links back to what i've said about understanding and not just seeing individuals and seeing a label and thinking we know all about that already um i think like the straightforward answer would be good support going for runs spending time with my cat but i think especially in this area of research and some of the job roles I've had along even the job roles I have alongside that now um like I've said self-reflection has been really important and being prepared to acknowledge when something hasn't gone the way I'd hoped it to and think about why that is 
be prepared to take feedback from other experts and other professionals and just being prepared to hear that take that on board and then adapt myself um but I also think you're right like we I am hearing a lot of really difficult and challenging stories from people that are really upsetting and obviously these the individuals who I've spoken to they've trusted me to hear that and tell their story and so I think just being mindful myself not in the moment because obviously I'm there to validate I'm there to hear that and I'm so grateful that so many individuals have trusted me with their stories and their experiences but being able to take time after to think about how how did I how did I hear that how am I processing that um and acknowledging when things are upsetting because understandably they will be and again I don't I'm one for really trying to tune in with how I'm feeling and recognize how I'm feeling and not try and block anything or put something off to think about tomorrow so I think that's been really really important as well um obviously just just hearing those stories and being there to validate those feelings and experiences but then also being mindful myself how am I processing that and how am I feeling after hearing that is always really important too. Thank you very much Heidi that's been a really interesting conversation thanks thanks very much for coming along and giving us of your time and your experience in such a sort of sensitive and thoughtful manner Really grateful. Thank you, Beth. I've enjoyed it as well. It's been great to speak with you.